Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are David Crow, our banking editor, and Jonathan Guthrie, head of Lex. We're joined down the line from Frankfurt by Martin Arnold, our bureau chief there, and also by Olaf Storbeck, who's our financial correspondent in Germany. And finally, Laura Noonan, our US banking editor, is joining us from New York. Our guest this week is Lorenzo Binismaghi, the chairman of Societe Generale. Today, we'll be looking at European Banking Union and the peace offering from the German finance minister. Secondly, Deutsche Bank's chairman, Paul Achleitner, has come under fresh pressure to go. And finally, Credit Suisse is changing its investment banking boss. Why are so many investment banks moving the deck chairs? So first, let's take a look at the prospects for Eurozone Banking Union. This is very important for the future of European banking. Of course, the EU and the Eurozone are being disrupted by the whole Brexit process. And there's been, at least for the past two or three years, a real logjam in being able to deepen in the banking sphere the ties that connect countries because the so-called banking union relies on not only a single regulator, which they've put in place, a single resolution scheme for broken banks that they have put in place, but also, and crucially, a single deposit scheme that would run right across the area. Now, Germany, unsurprisingly, perhaps, has been quite resistant to signing off on this scheme because they don't want German depositors to be on the hook for the failure of weak banks elsewhere in the Eurozone. To disentangle exactly what's happening, we're joined by Martin Arnold, our Frankfurt Bureau Chief, a former banking editor, of course. Martin Olaf Scholz, the German finance minister, made a peace offering in actually an opinion piece that he wrote for the Financial Times, basically floating the idea that Germany could, after all, support a region-wide deposit insurance scheme. Is that going to unlock the problems, do you think? How are we going to see banking union evolve from here? It is encouraging. It's an encouraging political move by Germany's finance minister. However, I must say that we're still a long way from this being a definite deal. In fact, overnight, there was some even more encouraging political signs because Angela Merkel was in Rome and gave a joint press conference with the Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte in which she talked about this plan floated by Olaf Scholz. And she said, the things are going in the right direction and we have to get ahead. So she seemed to be supporting it. Of course, it's worth pointing out that it wasn't a done deal that they were going to be on the same page on this because the grand coalition that's ruling Germany is comprised of representatives from the right-leaning CDU, from which Angela Merkel comes, and the SPD, the Socialist Party, which is Olaf Scholz's party. And there had been some concern that there was a divide on this issue. But as you say, that's pretty reassuring. 
All they need to do now is get the rest of the uh, Eurozone on side. Actually, politically, there seems to be this fresh impetus being given by Germany, which is very encouraging because Germany has historically been the big obstacle to this. But the proposals made by Olaf Scholz come with an awful lot of conditions attached. And in fact, in substance, the German position hasn't really changed very much. He's still saying that in return for agreeing to a common Eurozone deposit reinsurance scheme, that there must be all kinds of conditions met, including a reduction in the non-performing loans across the European banking system, as well as common rules on calculating companies' taxable profits, so a tax harmonisation, and also harmonisation of bank insolvency law, because they complain in Germany that some countries are able to deal with bank failures without respecting EU standards by just using loopholes in their own laws. So there's a lot of conditions attached in there. And the scheme itself is a reinsurance scheme as opposed to a full insurance scheme. So the first losses of any bank failure would still fall on the national deposit schemes. And it's only if they were then exhausted that there would then be a backup in the form of a call on European resources. But it is encouraging to have this political momentum. Yeah, at a time when the future of Europe more broadly seems to be increasingly in question, not least because of Brexit, it is an encouraging sign, as you say. And one more point, Patrick, is there's another German politician who's equally important in all this, and that is Ursula von der Leyen. And she's obviously the president of the European Commission, newly appointed, and she has made it a priority of hers for the new commission to get banking union completed. And a key part of that is this common deposit insurance scheme, which has been in the works for many years, and yet they've been unable to agree it between the political leaders in Europe. That's a crucial point. Thank you, Martin, for that. Let's just hear quickly what one senior banker thinks of progress here. We've been speaking to Lorenzo Benismaghi, the Italian national, actually, who chairs Societe Generale in France. And here's what he had to say. Well, I hope we will see some changes uh, towards uh, implementing and strengthening the path towards uh, a true banking union. Uh, first, because without a true banking union, we won't have a capital market union. So I think it's a very important uh, issue. Second, because I think it's a good news because also the German government realizes that um, a banking union is important for the German banks to strengthen the German banking system, which is being challenged. I think that the issues that they raise are important. They also have to realize that one of the current obstacles to banking union is that some regulators, in particular the German one, are still using national discretions allowed by the European legislation to restrict capital and liquidity to flow freely across the Union. So it's important that the, from the German point of view, they realize that they also have to, to give up on some issues. Uh, they raise the issue of uh, a series of issues in terms of conditions for moving to a banking union. I think they have to be examined and looked at and, and discussed. It's important that we, uh, as Europeans, do not put ourselves at a competitive disadvantage uh, with respect to the rest of the world, in particular the American uh, banking system. So uh, change in regulation uh, has to be done and, uh, and thought and implemented in a view to, to have a level playing field with the rest of the world. 
Well, let's move on to our second topic of the day and a look at Deutsche Bank. And as you've been reporting, Olaf, the chairman there, Paul Achleitner, who's been in place for a number of years now, overseen three or four different chief executives. But Deutsche, as we know, is still very much struggling with its future. Tell us what you have found out about this fresh pressure on the chairman. Yes, so Laura and I talked to several people familiar with the Meta who told us that Cerberus, the private equity fund, which owns a 3% stake in Deutsche, is now very keen on replacing the chairman, Paul Achleitner, relatively swiftly. And there's some behind-the-scenes discussion between different investors and the other investors in Deutsche Bank, which are the two members of the Qatari royal family, an asset management fund led by the former JP Morgan Chase finance director Doug Brownstein and BlackRock, the asset manager. Those big investors are also increasingly unhappy with Paul Achleitner's performance and doubt that he should finish his term, which will end in 2022. But they are not quite sure that this is the right point in time to actually replace him because they fear that Deutsche's big restructuring, which was kicked off in July, might be impaired by another boardroom battle if Paul Achleitner doesn't go voluntarily. So the other investors tend to prefer for now a solution which is backed by Paul Achleitner. This is obviously a story that's been rumbling for some time, given the investor dissatisfaction with Deutsche Bank. It's hardly surprising that the chairman would come under pressure. And back at the last Deutsche Bank AGM in the spring, there was the first sign of a kind of tangible rebellion, wasn't there? Because the Qataris, I think, took a stand against him then. Yes, so we had two votes on the AGM about Paul Achleitner. One was the kind of traditional common vote of approving management and supervisory boards actions in the previous year. Traditionally, in German companies, management and supervisory board members get an approval rating of above 95%. Paul Achleitner this year got something just above 70% of approval. This is a vote which doesn't have any real repercussions. There was a second vote on Paul Achleitner where some shareholders called for his removal from the supervisory board, which is a much more meaningful decision, obviously. And there, 90% of shareholders voted against it. And we've been told that one of the two Qatari funds voted alongside other disgruntled shareholders for removing Paul Achleitner, while the other Qatari fund didn't approve his actions in the previous year. So they basically split the vote. Yeah, so it feels like this dissatisfaction is accelerating again. Let me bring Jonathan Guthrie in, the head of Lex. Jonathan, what's your take on this? How important is it that Cerberus is starting to make a bit more noise now? Yes, Cerberus is barking more demonstratively than has been the case in the past. We think two things about this. Firstly, we think they've got a point. Mr. Achleitner has been there since 2012, and Deutsche Bank hasn't really gone anywhere very much. Its price to book is very depressed. And the common factor during that time has been Mr. Achleitner, who's very well connected in German public life. We've had a shuffling various chief executives over this time. And if you now talk to folks around Deutsche, they come up with quite complicated reasons why it would be a disaster for him to leave before he wants to in 2022. It seems to me it's not as if there's a huge amount of value he's created that would be destroyed. The thing we don't like very much about Cerberus is the silly name, which sounds like the sort of name you give to your 
heavy rock band if you're about 18 years old. But it signifies how serious they are. The hounds of hell are coming after Paul Achlein. Well, I think the problem with it is it also signifies where they come from culturally, which is Wall Street, hedge fund, private equity, activists who... They don't understand Germany, is what you're saying. Yeah, this is a consensual culture. The interventionists that we've seen in Germany quite often like Sivian, for example, who, to be fair, have become more aggressive of late, tend to be there for the long term and quite good at working within the system. And it seems to me that quite often you can have the opposite effect if you go in very aggressively. Yeah, I think that's possibly true. And we will wait and see what does transpire. It certainly doesn't feel as if Mr. Achleitner I don't know if you agree, Olaf, for a final word. He is ready to give up. The last public statement on this I think he made was that he intended to serve his full term until 2022. Yes, and from what we understand, he's still not really very keen on leaving. I mean, one thing which I think should be taken into account is that finding a successor isn't really a very straightforward task. First of all, because there are not many people who bring all the required skills. So ideally, Deutsche Bank's chairman is somebody who is well-versed in banking, is politically well-connected because it's a highly visible and very important job within Germany, Inc. And also this person needs to be able to speak German because the AGMs are to be held in German and the chairman is normally heading the AGMs. Olaf, for my book, you definitely tick the box on all three characteristics there. So I'll be voting for you. But Jonathan, a final word. You might wonder why it is that there is nobody lined up who has all those qualifications to replace Mr. Arkleitner, given that he's been the chairman. Succession planning hasn't been the greatest, it's fair to say. Wonder why. <laughs> Thank you both very much for that. Let's move on to our final topic of the day. So Credit Suisse has changed its investment banking boss, but it's far from alone. This is quite a trend that we're seeing, not only among European banks, but also globally. David, tell us about the Credit Suisse news, first of all. So yes, David Miller is replacing Jim Amin, who is off to the US in what can kindly be described as a sideways move. (laughs) And I think You know, this is the latest departure we've seen at the helm of a European or indeed a global investment bank. We've had Tim Throsby go from Barclays, Garth Ritchie from Deutsche Bank, and before that, Andrea Orsell from UBS. And all of the reasons are somewhat different, but I think it tells us something broader about the sector. There's always been this question about whether the decline of investment banking was cyclical or secular. And I think that there's now this kind of awareness or acceptance that there are some big shifts going on, the decline of public markets, technological transformation, the impact of new regulation, and that investment banking is just going to be a much tougher business to be in, and that maybe it needs a new style of leadership for that period. And Laura, to bring you in from New York on this, this isn't just a European bank's story, as David was saying. Obviously, the European banks are finding life a lot harder at the moment, given their domestic challenges and their relative scale compared to the US banks. But we've seen some big investment bank leadership changes at the US giants as well, haven't we? Yes, if I think about the year since I've come to the US, there's certainly been a lot of change at the very top of the investment banks here. So Towards the end of last year, we saw Christian Meissner, who was the head of investment banking for Bank of America Maryland. He stepped down. 
Then earlier this year, we saw Jamie Faris, who was the head of Cities Investment Bank, stepping down as well. And we also saw Colin Kelleher, who was Morgan Stanley's president and effectively running their institutional business or at the very top of it. He also stepped down. So we have seen new people appointed in those three companies. Now, what I would say is it was mainly a result of personal decisions and the stage these guys were at in their careers or idiosyncratic things in their bank. So in the case of, say, Christian, he had a fairly different view on the outlook for the investment bank than his bosses at Group did. In the case of Jamie Faris, he would have seen himself as being a potential successor to City CEO Mike Corbett, and he ultimately left in part because he thought Mike Corbett was going to stick around for longer. And then in the case of Colin Callagher in Morgan Stanley, he just decided to retire. He was at a certain age, he wanted to go and do different things. So while there is certainly a trend globally that the investment banking business has gotten tougher and so has trading, I think if we look at the changes in the US, those weren't primarily driven by those considerations. It does, of course, give the banks a good base to start from as they look to build something new, as they try to take their investment banks forward during what is a pretty challenging environment. Yeah, it is odd when you think about it, given that certainly some of the banks in the US are trading in terms of their own share prices at record highs. I'm thinking of JP Morgan in particular, but there is a sense of doom that it can only go one way from here. I think that's the problem. Let me bring David in for a final word on this. Is there more to come, do you think? Well, I think the big question mark has to be over Samir Asaf, who's the head of the investment bank HSBC, which is working on, as we know, a massive restructuring of its investment bank now. He has been the great survivor of investment banking, if you like, appointed in 2011. So not only has he seen off this recent round of recruits, but when he was appointed, it was people like Jerry Del Missier and Rich Ritchie at Barclays, Anshu Jain at Deutsche, Carsten Kengeter at UBS. And they've all gone a long time ago, and he's kind of the last man standing. Does he have the appetite to implement this big restructuring, which is going to involve tearing down big parts of his empire, or will he decide that that is a job for somebody else? That is a very good question that we need to keep an eye on. I'm sure you will, David. Thank you very much for that. Well, that's all for this week. My thanks to David here in the studio, as well as Jonathan Guthrie, Martin and Olaf in Frankfurt and Laura in New York. And our thanks too to Lorenzo Benismaghi, the chairman of Societe Generale. And thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>